Hello there, viewers. It's me again, Douglas Lane. This interview you're about to watch is with Slovoj Zizek. Um, for patrons, you'll be getting a conversation with Chris Catrone, uh, the uh, the former track coach of the Platypus Affiliated Society and, and the last Marxist, um, where we talk about Zizek. That's going to be recorded tomorrow. So I'm recording this on, uh, what is today, Wednesday the third, uh, if, if this is out on the fourth, then it will be there, uh, when this is out or it'll be there very shortly. If it's out tonight, which is actually my plan, um, uh, the, the patrons will be getting the Chris Catrone interview tomorrow. Um, but, uh, in any case, uh, right after this, you'll, you'll be seeing Slovoj Zizek and I discuss pandemic and pandemic two. Yes, Slovoj Zizek, um, welcome back uh, to the channel. It's now renamed uh, the Inside Critical Theory with Douglas Lane, and I'm very uh, pleased to be talking to you as the first uh, newly recorded interview guest um, on the channel. Um, I read your book, uh, Pandemic and Pandemic 2, recently, uh, and the first version of this book came out uh about what a year and a half ago and it came up very very quickly as soon as the mm -hmm. covid um a pandemic started uh and, and now you've you've added another uh you know another pandemic to a sequel to it into one book um i'm wondering and, uh, sorry to interrupt it's important so that we don't lose time to the end uh, now, in a couple of weeks, literally, it will be printed at the beginning of Decem December, it will be in bookstores, what is de facto volume three, called, the title is uh, Heaven in Disorder, mm -hmm. which I can, because I'm now, I move into more general waters in the sense that it's not just pandemic, now it's clear that pandemic is one moment of a much larger crisis, not only global warming and so on, but also, if I may just briefly explain something that I find maybe even much more dangerous. You know, Mao Zedong had that famous phrase, there is disorder under the heaven, the situation is excellent. He means when there is confusion, blah, blah, revolutionary forces can catch the opportunity. I think now something much more horrible is happening, what I call heaven itself in disorder. Mao still believed in a, what I call in Lacanian terms, big other, some fundamental social order, customs, historical necessity, whatever, which allows us to orient ourselves. This clearly is falling apart today. Okay, heavens were divided before in Cold War, but at least within a country there was some kind of enforced unity. Now, within each country, it's more and more difficult even to find a shared language, to 
communicate in the United States what is happening with the new Trumpian Republicans and Democrats, it's not just that they are in a conflict. Quite literally, you get the impression that they don't speak the same language. You cannot say, let's just talk it. You don't have the common shared language. And back to pandemic, I don't know how it is in the States, but with us in Slovenia now, this not speaking the same language is lately exploding. Incidentally, we are now, we in Slovenia, among the worst countries in the world. Yesterday, we had 3,500 new new cases, but we are a country of 2 million people. Mm -hmm. So imagine what this means for a larger country. And uh, (coughs) Sorry. The public discourse is falling apart. What do I mean by this? The, it's important, I'm not losing time. The, the government, the conservative nationalist authority is trying to enforce vaccination, but without making it obligatory. They still pretend that it's a free choice, but then they try to make it... Uh, more and more impossible not to be vaccinated, to avoid a misunderstanding. Here I am for simply obligatory vaccination for those Mm -hmm. who can take it. But my point is something else. How publicly consistent discourse is falling apart? Like, uh, so uh, they are, they try to use language of free choice, but at the same time, telling you clearly what you have to do. So yesterday I saw our TV news and literally uh, uh, some um, uh, uh, doctor who is a representative of health authorities said, uh, from next week on, elementary school and high school pupils are obliged to voluntarily test them, test themselves every day. (laughs) <laughs> obliged to do it voluntarily. All What I like is that all those things that I thought, these are my stupid dialectical paradoxes <laughs> to do with real life, mm. to hear them, because, you know, it's my old theory that the catch of what we call three-choice society is that sooner or later, if you dig deeper, you encounter a point when you are given a choice, but only on condition that you make the right choice. <laughs> Right. So uh, I try to deal with all this stuff. What is happening geopolitically? I even go to what's really happening. It's much more interesting if you want to debate it later with China today. I don't think it's the simple story of communist totalitarianism. I don't agree with it. But so, again, the book which will be soon out, Heaven in Disorder, a very pessimist analysis of where we are this is volume three. Sorry. Well, well you know, that's fine. When your first book um, on the pandemic came out, some people were critical of you, at least online, because it seemed to come out so quickly. But now that I've read both uh, the volume one and volume two, um, what I would say is that the underlying trends that the pandemic exposed and that you write about were yeah. going on already, that you didn't, that while 
while the pandemic was a shock, it didn't really introduce something new uh, in, in some ways. And for, for instance, you know, um, at the, in, in one part of your book, you, you're, you titled the section, why are we tired all the time? This is in the first pandemic section. And this, this would be a title that has new resonance under, under the conditions of the COVID lockdowns. Uh, but it certainly would have been something that, uh, might, might, a book might've been titled, why are we tired all the time? Uh, any decade that I've been alive, there might've been a book that would be popular under that title is what, because we've been tired all the time for a long time. And one of the trends that you, you write about is, uh, a, what is, ha- what was happening in the world where you are a worker, without an employer sort of a a very neoliberal move that's gone on and intensified under the pandemic but it's been going on for a while in your book you describe how in the post-pandemic world the gig economy has become stronger than ever and uh you quoted a guy named byung chul han he didn't yet make a breakthrough in the united states but he's a korean living in germany Mm-hmm. Rather conservative, but he made some nice observations, and he is now a big star for very strange reasons in all of Europe and in Latin America. Only Latin America. Don't ask me why. Yes. Okay. So, but the quote was driven by the demand to persevere and not to fail, as well as the ambition of efficiency. We become committers and sacrificers at the same time, and enter a swirl of demarcation, self-exploitation, and collapse. When production, when production is immaterial, everyone already owns the means of production, him or herself. The neoliberal system is no longer a class system in the proper sense. It does not consist of classes that display mutual antagonism. This is what accounts for the system's stability. And so my question to you is, how is it that we've become self-exploiters, do you think? And how has entrepreneurialism infected the working class so that people believe they aren't workers, but projects for themselves? And, and is it actually a fact? Like... Do you, you know, it's, I know for myself that I was uh, working as a freelancer without an employer in various jobs. I've been doing that for the last six, seven years. Um, so it did feel as though, in fact, that I was a project for myself. Um, but that meant that there was a lot of instability. But I just wondered what you, what you think has made this happen and has the pandemic intensified it? Uh. Let me first explain that uh, uh, what I try to do is to not to focus only on these precarious workers without permanent employment and so on, mm-hmm. and the way they are, get tired, but I do something very simple and commonsensical. Mm-hmm. Uh, although this tiredness is exemplary, typical of today, I think it should nonetheless have to be located in the series of three different types of tiredness. Mm. Don't forget that in all those sweatshops, Indonesia, China, and so on, where millions are assembling pieces or doing whatever, we still have, with hundreds of millions, the simple old-fashioned tiredness of repetitive, stupid handwork. You know, Mm. imagine sitting all the day and putting a chip into some box, which will then become whatever, a PC or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's not very exhausting. It's not difficult to do it. But to do this the entire day, it's extremely tiresome. 
But what kind of tiredness? It's annoying, it's debilitating, but at least it doesn't make you think. If you are well-trained enough, now, trigger warning, I'm entering my dirty waters. If you are uh, trained enough, used to it, and you get used to it because it's repetitive work, you know, you can think about making love, sex, whatever, your mind at least can wander. Mm-hmm. Then there is the second thing, uh, 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 care work, different forms of caring, not just doctors, nurses, but care for the old, helping those ill, helping elders and so on. If there is a lesson of the pandemic, but it went on already before, I totally agree with you that pandemic just brought out tensions which were already there. This is, I claim, a different type of tiredness, which in some sense I find even worse. Why? Because if you are not a sadist, and some people are here sadists, and let's say you are in a hospital, you cannot even sit, they have to wipe you or whatever, they do it in a brutal mechanical way. But most of us, I've spoken here with nurses and so on, are still I don't know for how long, minimally human. And what they find tiresome, precisely because they are still decent people, is that you cannot do it in a totally impersonal way, treating as a piece of meat the wounded or ill old guy. You have to display a minimal engagement, even maybe if you see that the guy is desperate, tell some joke, benevolent remarks, some words of care, and so on and so on. And this, they told me, is what, if you have to do this for 10, 12 hours a day, it's also, but it's a different, it's also very tiresome, but it's a different kind of tiredness. You know, this constant tension that you have to be kind, that like a, Although they are usually miserably paid, but they are aware that they are, that this is implicitly, at least if you're still a normal human, caring human being, this is part of the job. It's expected from you. For example, if you are in a nursing home taking care of the old people, it's expected. These are old people probably dying, whatever. It's expected from you to at least to enact, to pretend. To, to pretend to act as if you have some personal interest, engagement, compassion, and so on and so on. Mm-hmm. This is a totally different type of tiredness. Mm-hmm. But uh, where, again, tiredness of acting as if you have a personal engagement or even sincerely you have it all the time. But this is not yet the worst thing. I think, for me at least, the worst thing is what you mentioned. It's something, the basic idea came to me from Etienne Balibar, the French critical mm-hmm. theory guy, we all know him, who said that, that with this prevalence of individual intellectual workers and so on and so on, working class as we know it is disappearing. Working class in the sense that, let's say, we all work together in a steelworks, mine, large factory, whatever, and we experience in the very materiality of the situation that we are here, bosses, those who regulate, 
control us are up there. So you look around, you see fellows who are in the same deep sheet as you. You are, the space is open for some kind of solidarity. Right. The idea is that with this individualized work from home and so on and so on, it's not only that there is no longer this space for solidarity, but it's that because this work is, as a rule, often competitive, you experience, you don't even experience your true, under quotation marks, of course, enemies, bosses as the enemies. Since it's a competitive situation, the enemies are your co-workers, the ones with whom you should be, you should be, uh, one with whom you should practice some kind of solidarity. And again, since this type of environment is very competitive, it's as if you cannot relax all the time, you have attention, which is not just showing that you care from others, I would prefer to punch your nose, I smile, I'm polite. It's much worse. I actually have to put my brain to work, not in a very productive way, but new product, how to pack it, publicity slogans or whatever ideas. And uh, it must be horrible for me to have your brain working all the time for something for which, at least in the large majority of cases, you don't even really care. We are talking here about real brain activity, develop a product, organize something, and so on and so on. But again, mental uh, mental activity, competitive tension, and so on and so on. And now some people say, but I'm getting it wrong. When people like these precarious workers meet, it's uh, it's a creative dialogue. They exchange ideas and so on and so on. Yes, but it's all the time against the background of a competitive tension. You know, it's all the time who will have the most uh, original idea and so on and so on. It looks as a conversation. And the unwritten rules are, of course, that you shouldn't show that you are tired of it and so on and so on. Again, you have to perform your intellectual engagement and maybe from my standards, I don't underestimate ordinary hard physical work, but there is something terrifying, terrifying in it. It's that because usually for us, hard work is like, oh, that poor worker digging a hole with a shovel in the earth, just mechanically doing it. But I find something much more terrifying in this type of pseudo-intellectual engagement, where you really have to put your brain to work, not only this, then to succeed in such a competitive environment. You also have to be, you know, seductive, watch, be all the time attentive how to act, how to formulate your ideas. But not only this, what annoys me especially is that to be effective, to seduce your co-workers, partners, and so on, you have to be amusing, uh, 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 precise, and so on, and so on. But at the same time, you have to appear 
appear spontaneous, telling a joke and so on and so on. And this is for me the most horrible thing that even your moments of spontaneity, like, okay, this joke came to me, but wait a minute, will somebody be annoyed by it? Can I, can mm. I get in trouble for it? And so on and so on. Mm-hmm. This type of tension is, and here, this Korean guy, Byung Han, whatever, uh, he developed it quite nicely. Of how uh, we, it, it's not simply tension as opposed to spontaneity. It's a kind of enacted spontaneity which requires hypertension all the time. You know what is missing? I, in my old age, like doing it. This is the very opposite, that's what missing, of what I call, and I like doing it again, this usual, not necessarily vulgar, but friendly, ordinary conversation. You talk with friends, did you see the last James Bond? And not in this competitive way, oh my God, do I have some good idea? What went wrong? Is it good that uh, that James Bond dies at the end, whatever? No, you really don't care. You just say stupid things. Others are saying stupid things. This type of conversation is disappearing. And mm-hmm. that was... Uh, that exploded much further with pandemic, I think, because before. So, so wait, I want to I want to jump in and say sorry, please. I have, of I have, no, uh, sorry, I have two comments and then a question. Um, uh, the first comment I'll make is everything you just described uh, was recognizable and familiar to me. Um, yeah, and and uh, both as someone who worked, as I say, said so before, as a freelancer, you know, uh, without an employer without even a contract and mm-hmm. in a very precarious situation and was called upon in various jobs uh, from like a, a tutorial uh, company that I worked for and other jobs as well, called upon to make kind of management management style decisions all the time um, and yeah. invest in, invest myself in it. And I, it was tiring. And you, and as a freelancer, you, for, you might take on two or three of these uh, positions and different with different things and it's yeah. tiring, but the more important than that, was the fact that uh, I saw this description of how you are called upon to behave uh, uh, in an amicable way, but also in a way that's provocative and seductive, but not too provocative. Yeah. Always yeah. evaluating the other person. Yeah. Uh, seeing the the people around you that you're working with, uh, whether they're with the company you're with or some other company, is mm. is not allies but enemies. It, to me, I mean, you, if you want to see the perfect example of that kind of behavior, you look to media personalities on the left, particularly on Twitter, but in general, people who are not with a big corporation, but with small little entities and how they behave towards each other. And it's and it's a nightmare. I, I, did I understand you correctly uh, yeah. that you said media personalities on the left? That's right. Yes, yeah, because that's also my experience. You know, people say that we exaggerate the danger of political correctness, uh, uh, the cancelling culture and so on and so on. Mm-hmm. Maybe, but on the other hand, things are happening here. And the supreme irony that I see, did it have an echo in the United States also? The polemic triggered by an interview by Judith Butler in uh, 
in the Guardian, the British left liberal daily. Did you follow it? I did not follow oh, the story. Okay. I will be very brief. She, Judith, gave a long, substantial interview. Mm-hmm. Uh, it appeared in a shorter version uh, in print, but basically it was on, on their website. And what's so important is that she, in it, fero- uh, ferociously attacked the so-called TERF, trans-exclusionary radical feminist. Mm-hmm. I think she was, but let's not go into it now. I think she was too harsh. She used the term fascism, claiming that every doubt about this uh, her own topic, this complete plasticity, performativity of sex, and so if if you just say, but nonetheless, maybe biology does play a certain more fundamental role, and so on and so on. Mm-hmm. Every identity politics, identity politics, that's another point. In this sense, I don't want to go into these uh, contradictions of identity politics, is fascist. Now, first, I oppose this thesis. Look, we have to be very careful here. What about uh, the Native Americans or whatever you call them? You know that I don't like the name. Or Amish. If there is a group which is strict in its identity politics. We are this. It's no creativity, no performativity. Are the Amish people now? They, they have are, their own problems, but they are. But, but they definitely, I wouldn't call them fascists. They are right. a nice example of a of a, a strict fundamentalist identity. Which, yeah. But I didn't lose my. What happened? Well, I, mean, I, I want to. I just want to throw one comment in. The other person to point to who's not a fascist would be a feminist figure like Shumalith Firestone, who in the seventies wrote about how uh, overcoming um, sexism would require overcoming the limits of biology that women had imposed upon them by nature. Yeah, he wanted yeah. to overcome the 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 brutality of pregnancy through technological yeah. state inter- yeah. intervention. I mean, she uh, she was a radical feminist of her time, of a Marxist type, and she thought sex uh, and biology was uh, important and needed to be overcome. Right, that those limits needed to be overcome. Biology wasn't like a, yeah. a moral category, but it did have a material yeah. uh, impact on the life of women. Um, the fact they got pregnant primarily. So, hmm. um, so like, w- what would Judith Butler say to Shumalith Firestone that she was a fascist? Um, I doubt it. Anyway, that's-, that's one problem. But now I want to draw attention to. I'm sorry that I got lost in it. With mm-hmm. on another point, mm-hmm. then it's unique. A little bit over one day after this happened, the question to which. Judith answered in this problematic reply, and her answer itself just disappeared. It was censored, to put it brutally. And Guardian just added a short note that claiming that, uh, of course, they didn't use the term censorship or whatever, but that the interview was edited because of some new facts and so on, as if some new data became available, and everybody knew what happened. The turf people exploded, bombarded Guardian with protests, and to avoid further conflict, they censored it. But that's so horrible. 
they even didn't want to admit it. They masked it in more neutral terms. Something new happened. They didn't specify when and so on. You know, it's this is what I hate most. I often wrote about it. A prohibition, which is itself prohibited. And that's typical of the left for and more. That's why mm-hmm. I was attentive to your uh, leftist point, that yeah. things are de facto prohibited, but you are not allowed to say this is prohibited. I would much more like cancelling culture if we were to get a booklet with clear rules. I want to use this word, sorry guys, prohibited, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is what shocked me. How, uh, 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 although cancelling culture and so on wants to present itself as liberating and so on and so on, there is censorship there, but censorship which is itself censored. It reminds me, do you know when, a couple of years ago, when there was a problem, it still is, but at that point it was in the media with Edward Snowden. Mm-hmm. You remember that Evo Morales, at that time president of Bolivia, took a flight from Moscow to Latin America and was forced to land in Austria. Mm-hmm. Of course, European Union surrendered to American pressure because there was a rumor or suspicion that uh, Morales is smuggling uh, Snowden, Mm -hmm. the whistleblower, in his plane. And the plane was landed in Austria. It was inspected. Of course, there was no Snowden, Mm -hmm. no additional person in it. But uh, the disgusting thing was that Everybody knew what it was about. Mm-hmm. But the official explanation was that there was some misunderstanding with flight coordination and the flight mm-hmm. was not properly registered and so on and so on. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what I find, if you ask me, really oppressive. Where is the link with what we talked before? It's the same as when you are this new type of manager coordinating with others Everybody is regulated and so on, but you have to play to enact false spontaneity and so on and so on. Here is the same. Censorship which is not even allowed to function as censorship. And may I add another example which did strike me? I think mm-hmm. this happened somewhere in, I think it's United Kingdom. Correct me if I'm wrong. Did you hear a case about Othello? Othello, Lawrence, not Shakespeare's play, but Lawrence Olivier movie from Mm -hmm. 1962, I think. Mm -hmm. Of course, Lawrence Olivier plays Othello, and of course, my God, he blackened his face to play play a black guy. Mm -hmm. Then uh, this happened, no, it was in the state, a young uh, Oriental Chinese or Japanese composer who teaches music there, he was one of those geniuses, got MacArthur Award and so on, progressive guy. He, he just showed this movie to his students to illustrate some musical points. But mm-hmm. then some of his students wrote a public letter that this is an openly racist movie because it's cultural appropriation. And then they went a step further and claimed that that 
to show. Now, be careful about my formulation. It's literal from that accusation. To show a movie like Othello, where a white guy plays a black guy, to show it without proper framing, historic contextualization and warning that it's a racist movie, it is in itself a racist act. Now, uh, what I find problematic here is that uh, this statement is so blatantly false. In what sense? They claim you should, if you show some from political, from the standpoint of political correctness, problematic work of art, that you should properly contextualize it, mm. show the premium and so on. But uh, isn't it clear that what such a quick judgment dismissal does is that it precisely does not contextualize it. It just states, no, it shouldn't be shown because it's not appropriate to our today's standards. They don't, con they precisely don't contextualize it. Right. So uh, uh, this, uh, uh, and also, I will not go into it now in detail, it's also obvious in what sense such a stance is implicitly racist in itself, as if the potential victims are so stupid that they have to be in advance warrant what they will see, don't be afraid, it's not meant to hurt you. I cannot imagine anything more racist. And I remember from my youth, mm -hmm. you know, today's generation doesn't know it. John Forsythe, big bourgeois kids novel, uh, sorry, John Goldsworthy, Saga of Forsythe. Mm -hmm. It was a big BBC production, extremely popular. And he was a relatively progressive guy. So in late 60s, it was shown also in Soviet Union. And they did exactly the same as politically correct guys want today. Each episode was introduced by some Marxist theoretician, which provided proper framing. He said, mm. it may appear progressive, but look, Capitalists are still the good guys. It's just humanitarianism and so on and so on and so on. I find these more subtle forms of censorship, censorship which even denies itself as censorship, I, I find it uh, very uh, problematic. Which is you why... Know, I, okay, I, I, uh, sorry, I, please I, go I, on, I, yes? Yeah. I um so I had a question I wanted to ask and now I'm going to recast that question because of the 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 uh, responses I, that you had to my comments. Yeah. Um the the question was originally going to be how is this the way in which precarity and the new forms of tiredness uh how are they uh stopping uh let's say a a, a movement amongst workers for socialism? Can we say that that's happening? But now what I I'm going to add is do you think that the majority of the kinds of incidents, like the ones that you've described, where mm -hmm. there was censorship that had to, that the censorship itself was censored, uh, there was political correctness that mm -hmm. that uh, went too far? Do you think that in fact the people who are making those the decisions around these things are tired, in the sense that you describe that they are put into this position of being uh, uh, you know managers? without being management. 
that they're put into this position of being precarious intellectual workers involved with something they don't truly care about, but but tired from the, their own self-exploitation. Is this culture of constant surveillance and, and, and mm. self-policing truly coming out of the precarity of of a, of a working class that doesn't recognize itself as working class. It's not. I think it's not only this. It's also what we all know: the inappropriate answer to real problems going on today. I wouldn't say that political correctness is excessive, too strong. I think this apparent excess is the mask, the form of appearance of its exact opposite. All this apparent fanatical insistence, you use that wrong word, and so on and so on, masks the fact that real, actual relations of power and so on remain exactly the same as they are. I, uh, my problem with political correctness, again, is not that it's too radical, it's that it's precisely not radical enough. It's a fake radicality, and I think this is what makes you tired doing it, that mm. deep in themselves, they know it. We are losing time. We pretend to fight for more justice, rights of women, other races, and so on and so on, but it's all a fake. It will change nothing. We are, we are I like this phrase, we are active all the time, but ultimately to make it sure that nothing will really change. You know why I'm telling you, telling you this? Because mm. sometimes in my works, I use this uh, 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 phrase. Uh, this is, I consider myself an obsessional neurotic. <laughs> and I think that this is the definition of obsessional neurotic. Look, how was I in psychoanalysis as a patient? I talked all the time. Mm. But you know why? Not that I had so many things to tell to the analyst. But because I was afraid that if I stop talking for a couple of seconds, the analyst may ask me a question which would really hurt me, which would really touch some crucial point. So I literally talked all the time to make it sure that nothing will really change, that just mm -hmm. to avoid any traumatic stuff and so on and so on. And I find something similar with uh, this uh, constant search of political correctness, but you use this wrong phrase, weren't you a little bit racist there, and so on and so on and so on. Uh, another thing that I find also here strange, it's an observation. I would like you to show me if I'm wrong, but the difference here between uh, uh, domain, the domain of uh, sexuality and the domain of race relations. How? Mm -hmm. In the case of uh, um, Laurence Olivier or uh, playing uh, a black guy or generally racial relations, you have to stick to your identity. Like it's false for a white guy, it's cultural appropriation or racism, blah, blah, to play a black guy. Here, they prefer that you are only a black guy, can be properly a black guy, and so on and so on. Mm -hmm. But isn't it, or do I have a wrong observation here, that in the domain of, uh, <coughs> sorry, in the domain of sexuality, 
fluidity in adopting different positions is praised all the time. What would be the correlative of a white guy playing a black guy? I don't know, uh, a straight guy dressing up as a woman and so on. All this constant uh, sliding and changing identities, I don't get it, but there they are, it's a big difference. There in the realm of sexuality, fluidity of every position is supported uh, to the end and so on and so on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it, um, there was a, a cancellation of a, uh, of a philosopher in the United States. I think her name was Tavell. She had written for a feminist journal about how if we were to support, support the trans rights movement, we should also support the trans uh, racial uh, rights yeah. movement. Ah, what happened to her? It's a perfect example. Yeah, they, people said that her article um, was an act of violence against uh, the trans community. Oh, and or the uh, of people of color, depending on which group was speaking, but they they um, called for her piece to be uh, removed and uh, for and the and, and the public publishers of the of the piece um, issued a public apology uh, for having published it. But it was in fact only a kind of boring philosophical. Uh, essay where the logic of the defense of transgender uh, rights was examined and compared to a defense of transracial rights and found that like in a kind of analytic philosophy kind of way that, you know, to be consistent, you had to hold both positions as equally valuable. And that and the, and that the, the conclusion was we should support people in their struggle to in their transgender identity and we should support people in their struggle for their transracial identity. That was her. Yeah her conclusion and but that was deemed to be uh an attack on transgender people and on people of color um by people who read it can i tell you another thing which confirms perfectly what you said and implies another quite nice insight by the way was... just to talk about this just to talk about that case at all is an act of hate probably by in some people's imaginations because we are supposed to have forgotten that that ever happened that's this is yeah, you know yeah, yeah. Now you said something so important. Mm. That is the problem for me with uh, political correctness. When you approach the really touchy points, you cannot even openly discuss them. You have to do what Hegel uses this term. It's a beautiful German word, ungeschehen machen, to undo it, to treat it as if it didn't happen. The point is, of course, that this doesn't work because... Again, this is another example of what I called prohibition of the prohibition itself. Mm. You have to be all the time aware which are the things that shouldn't be mentioned and so on and so on. And also, uh, I was so furious. Maybe I already mentioned this to you with some of my other in some of my other podcasts with you. How you know what I saw as a clear act of racism. Uh, I once mentioned that I was talking with a black guy, a theoretician, and in a mockingly, fr very friendly way, uh, imitating racist uh, prejudices, I asked him, is it true that you blacks have such big penises and that you can move them at your will to, to, to smash a fly on your leg or whatever? And the, the guy told me, uh, oh, my God, we are really friends. 
uh, you can call it an N word. Okay. No, I, okay. Yeah, I will censor yeah, that. But you, you yeah. know, you know what? You know what amused me here that uh, uh, the attack was, but he must have been joking. Key, did you really call him N? Didn't they get it? We both of us were relatively educated, but not even educated. Ordinary people know this. What the black guy did was a perfect example of what I call this empty, friendly gesture. You know, like he offered this, and of course, we both understood that it would be extremely brutal and tasteless of me to say, okay, now you allowed me, I will call you N. It was right, this right. type of rhetorical empty gesture. I would never, that's why it was yeah, pure course, but, uh, but also, also you were really, is all he was saying is, you're my friend now. I like yeah. it. That's yeah. all he was saying. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm. But nobody, but that's my point. Uh, there was no warning needed. Don't, uh, I don't mean it seriously. It wasn't meant as a serious right, offer. Right. And uh, where do I see racism? As if, aren't you nervous by this, how this worry of liberals, white liberals, apropos of trans people, it brings us back to the problem that you had, that uh, trans people will be offended. Maybe in your case, there was a fanatical group, but now we're coming to my original story, very short one. A friend, uh, a friend is Todd McGowan from mm -hmm up there, uh, 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 Bernie Sanders' uh, country, Vermont. Uh, he told me that they are reading a book of mine at his seminar, and there were some trans people there and reported to him something which almost made me cry, because this, this justifies what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. They told him that among trans people themselves, they love me because they read my, messi my message. They know I'm not a binary sexist. I think that sexual difference is a trauma at trans people in a much clearer way than us, mm. heterosexual, whatever, embody this trauma. So it's my very insistence on sexual difference as the trauma of a real that makes me especially open to trans people. And they love me. But they notice that those who really hate me are not trans people themselves, but they're white liberal friends who, again, uh, 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 practice their patronizing attitude and worry all the time, oh my God, will this hurt them, and so on and so on. You know, mm. trans people who are my friends uh, are horrified at how much implicit patronizing attitude is practiced by those who apparently defend them. But yeah. well, also, I wanna, I, uh, sorry, I, just I, one more okay. remark, okay. pure horror. Do you know that uh, uh, also the term that I find problematic here, because uh, uh, the protesting student against showing of Otello, mm -hmm. I think it was a lady, she wrote that it's horrible I felt so threatened seeing that movie. Isn't academia a, a safe space? So mm. it shouldn't be shown. It's, my idea is here 
exactly the opposite. We should make everyday life a safe space. Academia, precisely because it is at a distance, shouldn't academia precisely be the space which is not safe in the sense of we ignore problems, but which is the space where we can openly talk about all these horrors, dirty words, and so on and so on. That's what I find problematic in this use of the category safe space. Safe space means, for example, also uh, the example that you mentioned, a similar one happened somewhere else, but also a professor who wrote that uh, biology also plays a, a part in se uh, 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 sexual identity, was attacked by some other feminist who claimed she's threatening the safe space. What does safe space mean here? It simply means I stick to my, because I stick to my prejudices, to my ideological self-understanding. Mm -hmm. And if your self-understanding is Butlerian, that is to say, fluid identities, blah, blah, then somebody who claims biology plays a certain role is a fascist. Endangering your safe space. But you know, the horror is nobody... I, I Sorry. I have something on my. I have to. I want to talk to you about because I, I won't get an opportunity again right away. Um, and it's so. And I've heard you say that the, the you would never be a therapist because you find other people's problems to, to be so boring. And I I understand this, but I have to tell you um, something a little bit personal. I won't go into it too much. But I've gone through a divorce and I've been seeing a therapist, and the therapist is Lacanian. And so you come up from time to time in the course of, I'll mention you because yeah. we both know who you are. Yeah. And, and I wanted to tell you that uh, my therapist says that when it comes to my romantic life, I should not listen to anything you say or try to understand sex and sexual relations through uh, your um, advice. So I, I wanted to give you an opportunity to, to defend yourself from my therapist, but also ask you a question which is as someone who's now entering into the world of dating again after a long time without it, yeah. I have found that people who I am with will want to talk a lot and that they want to, the dirty talk and, and that kind of thing is uh, something that seems necessary in a way that it wasn't before. That, yeah, yeah. And that this is something in the culture. What are the rules now? I don't know. How I far are you allowed uh, to go in dirty talking? I, I, I can go as far as you need to shave your pubes at least a bit. Um, you, yeah, you, dirty talk is um, uh, 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 the norm. Um, a little bit of. Uh, yeah, but this for me, sorry, what you just said is for me not dirty talk, it's something much worse because dirty talk is pseudo concrete. Screw you up your ass, whatever. But this is just generalized benevolent insults. Well, for me, when somebody looked at me when I'm naked, half naked, and gives me an order like that, shave your pubic hair a little bit, I, I would find this intolerable, if you ask me. This, right, is, for well, me not dirty, this is for me not dirty talk. This is, this is no, no, no. extremely no, brutal. No, that's separate. That was separate. The, 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 yeah, yeah. the injunction to, to shave the pubes a bit was, was something that was put forward by uh, someone who I was going to see who uh told me that before you know any she was not exposed to my pubes when she gave me that injunction yeah 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 no, okay no, yeah, no, yeah, no. yeah 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 <laughs> but 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 um 
what uh no the, the dirty talk is more like you know oh, i'm gonna do this and do that to me and and that kind of thing while it's going on what right you mentioned this in the in your book that that there's a kind of a fan a fantasy that has to be maintained verbally in order for for lovemaking to occur um and and that that there's a more radical kind of lovemaking which is truly material and bodily without the necessity of creating a fan. Yeah, fan wait a minute. Here I am more. Uh, I'm. That's my paradox, if I may put it in these bombastic terms. Mm. Here I'm more uh, ambiguous. On the one hand, I claim generally sex needs what is called a phantasmatic support. You are never really alone with your partner. You sex. That's why I call sex real sex. In the usual, done in the usual way, uh, 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 masturbation with a real partner. You want mm. to actualize or live intensely through some of your in, uh, uh, sexual fantasies, and you do it with a live partner. But partner mm. is de facto reduced to a masturbatory plot. Mm. And my paradox. Is, and that's why I quote the story, I repeated it so often, I love it, from Eve Weissman, a commentator in Guardian. Mm. She was horrified by the scene she saw in a documentary about making hardcore pornography, how a guy is doing it to a woman, he loses erection, and then mm. he asks for his uh, iPhone so that he can look at the uh, uh, Pornhub quickly, some hardcore shots to get erection again. Mm -hmm. Like she's horrified by the idea, but you have it there, the real excited, aroused, uh, 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 flesh, uh, excitement, body, and so on. But I think this is generally the structure of sex. And my point, you were correct, is that, but is this all the way like this, that when we make love, we are we are using the other as a masturbatory prop. Now comes my romantic side. Mm -hmm. I don't think this happens in love. I'm not saying you shouldn't talk while you make love when being in love, but I think, and that's the paradox I'm trying to pass, that that if you make love with love, being deeply in love with your partner. It's a much more intense bodily experience. Only then, the body of your partner is not just a masturbatory prop. You know, it's this absolute wonder. My God, this is really her or him or whoever and mm -hmm. so on. Mm -hmm. It's this mm -hmm. absolute presence. While I think that precisely this pure, pure without love, just raw sex and so on, functions quite well in virtual space. And I don't know the data in the United States, but here in Slovenia, again, I repeat my point, I spoke with some sociologists who did a little bit of investigation and told me that the outcome of all these young guys spending hours in front of a video, hardcore pornography, used to it and so on, the result is less sex. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, like again, a, a friend of my son once told me, listen, seduction is, means a loss of time. You spend hours bringing flowers, whatever it's done today, I don't know. Why not just 
open on your PC. Pornhub or whatever, masturbate in two minutes, it's over, life goes on, you go to a much more pleasurable video game or whatever. So uh, the crucial lesson for me here is that raw sex is much more fantasmatic and digitalized than love. Love is material. Only in love you accept your partner as it is. True love doesn't idealize. The magic of true love is that you see your partner's body in all its small deficiencies, whatever, but you say, nonetheless, that's it. That's my absolute at that point. I'm an incurable romantic here. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm with you. I'm with you. My therapist says I shouldn't listen to you, but I'm going to listen to you. But don't, no, maybe the therapist has, right? Because, you know, something similar happened to me after it's my old joke, but it really happened a couple of times. Mm-hmm. After I gave a talk, a student came to me. You fascinated me. Could I become your mm-hmm. analysant? Could you analyze me? And my standard answer is, uh, if you could imagine even for a moment me as your analyst, then you are really mad and go to a real psychiatrist. But it's much more intense. Let me be frank. It's not that I am bad evil or whatever. Mm. The problem why I could never be an analyst is one, I always worry about how what I may say will affect the other. Many of my psychoanalytic friends, without of course describing details or even indicate which person was this, told me that you have these tense situations in analysis analytic process, close to a psychotic breakdown where one wrong gesture from you can be that tiny push that makes the patient collapse, even drove him to suicide and so on. And that would have been too much for me. It's too much of a responsibility. Good psychoanalyst, I think, doesn't care too much for you. You must have a little bit of this brutal neutrality. Psychoanalysis is not we are friends, we tell each other secrets and so on and so on. No, as Lacan put it, you as an analyst, if you are, you are living that. You are, you know, and I I accept this. The only thing that I would that I would answer to your analyst (laughs) is that but uh, Maybe I'm saying half-imagined stupid things and so on and so on. But isn't sex like that? I don't think that sex is just, you know, now it's serious, this is how it really works. Anything can work in sex. I don't believe in general formula for sex. Isn't the whole charm of sex that you are flirting with somebody and it doesn't uh, work, something is missing. Then you know how, in most of the cases, how you put it, the ice is broken, you establish a contact. When the other, or you to the other, does something stupid, a stupid mistake or whatever. Something goes wrong, and then you tell yourself, oh, it was so nice what stupid thing he or she did, 
I love him or whatever. It's mm. always a failure. You never fall in love with perfection. Right. No, I, I definitely, I definitely that I, yeah, I definitely that think that's true. I mean, um, that's uh, that's been my experience. Is that the the when I felt the limited degree I felt connections as I go back out in the dating world has been with people who, uh, you know, I didn't feel like we were making every right move. It wasn't like we were following the manual. Some something would go wrong, and then we could laugh about it together. Yeah. Usually something yeah. I did wrong, um, but yeah. No, I totally with you. But let, let's make this political. One one last question for the end. Like, okay. how do we how do we take this um understanding of the necessity of failure as a way towards a radical change and maybe something like a love of the world? How do we understand that in the in this moment of precarity in the pandemic? Um, how you know how do we when we're so tired find a way to have a materialist movement for for change that would be you know spontaneous here i am as i repeat it uh, again and again in this my books which are not really studies but collections of short essays mm-hmm. here i am as it's getting clearer and clearer to me here i'm a little bit of a pessimist it looks now that this uh, pandemic will drag on and on who knows what will happen with a global warming, with food. In United Kingdom, not some lunatic Stalinist leftists, but some conservatives even, even think that maybe if also this transportation deadlocks will remain, not enough trucks and so on operative, that some kind of, uh, um, how do you call it, that you get food on re- coupons, rationing will have to be. Mm-hmm reintroduced and so on. So I think that uh, the only way to really, it's a radical move, but it can be done. Uh, To get out of this constant tiredness is to accept that we will have to really change our most ordinary daily life. It doesn't mean we will become monsters walking behind masks, whatever, but, but uh, you know, uh, what we are witnessing today, it's a gap between our normal self-understanding and what, and I believe here science, although it's manipulated and so on, what science is telling us. Pandemics, global warming and so on will force us to change many features that we perceive as something that is fundamental to our way of life and that we spontaneously experience as our normality. I don't think this will survive. We will have to change much more substantially. And once we accept this, I think, tiredness will at least change. Because well, to accept I, I, this will not be will not be even more tiresome. You have to follow new rules and so on and so on. But just to accept that we really will have to change. I think that people who are tired are tired because they don't get enough of what they perceive as their normal daily life, whatever it is this for you in the United States, even for us here, going to a cafeteria, drinking, meeting with friends, whatever, and so on and so on. 
it will remain, but in a changed way, and what makes it politically even more problematic is that, uh, is that uh, you know, my anti-Marxist point, uh, referring to vulgar Marxism, we are not riding a train of history which brings us to progress. We have to act anti-intuitively. Again, as Walter Benjamin said, we have to push the brake, uh, sorry, the emergency, pull the emergency brake on the train of history. And that's difficult to do. Once we did this, we will gain new, new, we will gain new freedom. Another thing, I wonder if you will agree. My colleague Alenka Zupantric put this nicely. Everybody talks today about emancipatory politics. Mm-hmm. She said we have to go a step further and emancipate politics itself. I don't know how it is with you, but many right-winger or, or those who resist lockdown and other measures claim, I want my freedom back. Mm-hmm. Uh, like a lady on Slovene TV, who was among the uh, anti-COVID protesters, said when asked why she on that public big demonstration, she said, I don't care about politics. I just want my body, my freedom to do what I want back. That's the most horrible statement that I can imagine. Because what counts as your body? What counts as your freedom? This is politics. We don't need less politics. We need more politics, more authentic politics. Because we are in a political situation in the sense that we will have to change our way of life, but there are no big meta-historical norms that would tell us exactly we have to do this, that. We will have to experiment. There are terrible dangers and so on and so on. So what we need more than ever today is authentic politics. Well, uh, uh, Slovo, I just want to thank you again for spending the, an hour with me here. But don't forget about censorship. I, I wanted to thank you for helping me in our common struggle as we try to be less tired in this uh, time of the pandemic. So um, I hope you feel well in the days ahead. I hope you feel well. And if I may end up in a way which is very friendly, obscene, but very friendly, mm-hmm. I hope also your dating will not turn into this obscene process where, pervert process where you will forget, you will enjoy so much the process of flirting that you will forget the final goal, you know, that you will start to enjoy too much the process of flirting. Look, Remember that nonetheless... At you're not some my therapist, point, Lavoie. You're, you're not my therapist. I don't need this advice from you. But yes, I... <laughs> I got it. You are right. You are right. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. Okay. 